This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we get started. On today's episode, we discuss child abuse and self-harm, which may be distressing for some listeners. I'm Jane Lee, and this is The Full Story. Over the last decade, we've learned just how prevalent child sexual abuse is. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse revealed that children have been abused at churches, schools, children's homes, sporting clubs, and in after-school care by the very people entrusted with caring for them. And many survivors, faced with an often hostile legal system, accepted pitiful amounts of compensation in exchange for their silence. This was just one of the ways institutions covered up abuse, allowing it to go on unchecked for decades. But now, around Australia, new laws are levelling the playing field for survivors who are taking on these institutions. Today, the new laws turning the tide for Australian child abuse survivors. It's Tuesday, the 20th of September. So, Chris, you've been looking at some historic sexual abuse cases involving children. Tell me about that. Yeah, so when we talk about historic sexual abuse, some of these cases are decades old and the the survivors are now adults who suffered sexual abuse as kids at the hands of churches or other institutions. Christopher Norse is a reporter for Guardian Australia. So I've been looking at the process by which they pursue monetary compensation from the institutions that were responsible, whether that's through the courts or outside of the courts in a private mediation. And what we've seen is that this process for many years, for decades in fact, was incredibly flawed because there was a power imbalance between the institutions and the victim from the beginning of that process right to the end. Right. So tell me about what this process of seeking compensation used to look like. Well, I mean, the first thing to note, and this is something that's been really widely reported since the Child Abuse Royal Commission in 2016, is that the trauma from abuse like this makes it really, really hard for people to even start asking for help or even telling people about what's happened to them. You know, there's these feelings of shame, there's feelings of fear, uh, people don't want to go back and, and dredge up these really traumatic memories that they've they've buried away, this fear of not being believed. Right. If you're a child, it can understandably take many, many years to process what's happened to you. Yeah, and there's also a sort of fear of taking on the institutions where you are harmed because that is a big battle. Um, you're taking on a, a really powerful institution with, with a lot of resources often and it can take a lot of time, money, you need to engage lawyers. It's a, it's a really quite a daunting prospect. Mm. And, you know, what this means is is these processes can traditionally take a really long time. So it can take 10 years on average for survivors to report historic abuse in the first place. And by that time, historically, it's been often been too late because of something that was in existence uh, for a long time called, in these matters, called the statute of limitations, which gives survivors a deadline for taking legal action and, and gives them a really finite window within which they can launch a case. So, you know, if they're only able to come to terms with their abuse after that small window, which is, you know, in Victoria is 12 years, then the law says it's too late for them to do anything about it in court. Mm. And that that's a huge barrier um, to survivors to even start 
making these claims. Right. But once someone did decide to pursue an institution for compensation, what did that process look like? So you can approach the institution directly, um, which is something that was done a lot in the 1990s and, and 2000s. And then you can also threaten to sue if you can't reach an agreement or, or a settlement outside of court. So usually the institution is is the target for compensation. Um, they have more resources. They're thought to be liable and individual perpetrators may or may not be alive anymore. Often it's argued that the institution should have prevented the abuse or and sort of had a duty of care to the survivor to protect them and ensure that they were safe as a member of, you know, say a congregation or as a student at a school. But suing institutions like that is not always possible because some institutions are shielded from being sued, like, for instance, uh, the Catholic Church. Hmm. Okay, so why are institutions like the Catholic Church shielded from being sued? So it's a deficiency from common law, from a ruling in 2007, which essentially found that the church institutions couldn't be held responsible for the crimes of individuals. So unincorporated associations, so, you know, the Catholic Church, for example, and and some other charities, haven't in the past been able to be sued. That's because unlike businesses, these organisations don't have a legal identity separate from their members. So in those cases, because there's no one to take legal action against, no one can provide compensation to these survivors. And all of these barriers have meant that really when survivors go to these groups asking for compensation, the institutions know that that survivors, are, are, everything is stacked against them and that it's really difficult for survivors to sort of take them to court and demand a higher amount. How are you going? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. That's good. Thanks so much for doing this again. I really appreciate it. No, no. Anytime. That's great. I spoke to one lawyer about this, Sangeeta Sharman, who is special counsel at Ken Cushion Associates. And she said this gives a lot of power to institutions like the church. Mm. So you have this situation where, you know, unincorporated associations such as, you know, a diocese or a church have been able to avoid liability for abuse, um, even in situations where they hold significant assets. Also, many victim survivors who have received compensation have signed away their rights to bring future litigation and agreed to stay silent about the abuse as part of the settlement. And clearly that has a broader silencing effect. If no one knows that this abuse happened at all, then it's easier for this to continue. And so what have lawyers told you about how this legal environment has affected their clients' well-being and also their ability to claim compensation for historic abuse? Many survivors sort of told the Royal Commission that they they felt re-traumatised, they felt brutalised again by their experiences of seeking compensation. So that means that many survivors really have settled for pitifully low compensation amounts. I spoke to one legal firm who told me they had a client who was forced to accept as little as $10,000. And I guess it's also important to note there are a lot of non-legal barriers as well. So you can imagine, you know, an almost powerless and heavily compromised victim who's essentially forced to accept a small amount of compensation because the legal playing field was just unfortunately heavily sloped against them. $10,000 does seem incredibly low. What can compensation mean for the lives of survivors? Look, 
$10,000 is not enough to cover the costs of a lifetime of mental health care and other associated bills because for many survivors, you know, sexual and physical abuse is a life-changing event. Um, it has really profound impacts and causes really deep trauma uh, to individuals. So many people end up not being out of work, they'll lose marriages, they may have been, you know, got caught up in the criminal justice system. They um, have suffered really, really terrible and long-lasting mental health problems all their lives. So, you know, on, on a practical level, in that sense, compensation can help them, you know, pay their bills. You know, it's money for everyday living expenses, groceries, uh, bills, that sort of thing, um, particularly where they've been left unable to work. But on an emotional level, it, it gives a lot more. It gives them validation, gives them a sense of justice, or can give them a sense of justice, um, and really just a public recognition or a private recognition of the wrong that's been done to them. Yeah, Chris, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse made a number of recommendations in its final report back in 2017. And these were designed to prevent abuse from happening, but also to make it easier for survivors to get redress. What are some of the ways these sorts of barriers have changed since the Royal Commission? Yeah, look, the Royal Commission has been really transformative in this space. So what we've seen is we've seen a lot of the barriers that we've just been talking about removed and we've seen the playing field really leveled out for survivors. And state, territory and federal governments, as well as major churches and other institutions, have joined something known as the National Redress Scheme, which is a government-run scheme that provides compensation to survivors in a non-confrontational way. That scheme is limited. Um, it's limited in the amount that can pay out. Some survivors say it's really hard to access and many survivors say that they still need to go to court um, to seek adequate compensation. Mm. On top of that redress scheme, um, some states have passed laws that make it a lot easier for survivors to sue religious institutions for historic child abuse. And all of this has meant that a lot of survivors have started to revisit their old settlements um, that they struck under those really unfair circumstances we were talking about earlier, um, especially in circumstances where the payments they received were really low to begin with. So how have the laws changed for survivors who previously settled for small sums of compensation? So since 2019, a lot of the states and territories began progressively introducing uh, a scheme that allowed survivors to apply to the courts to set aside past settlements and lodge fresh claims against institutions. And they can do that where a court decides that it is just and reasonable for them to do so. So what that means is that, you know, was what you received previously an adequate amount of compensation for the abuse and the trauma that you suffered? What this does is it acts in two ways. It, it gives survivors making new compensation claims more power to negotiate because organisations now know that, you know, if they're not acting in a way that's just and reasonable, that these survivors will have a legal right to go to the court and ask them to set the deal aside. But secondly, it also just helps people who got these really small sums before um, these laws came into effect. Um, it helps them to get better deals when they can't agree on a larger sum of the organisation out of court. Also, in states like New South Wales, survivors who seek to have settlements set aside are no longer breaching gag orders previously made with churches and other institutions. This is really significant because it allows survivors to speak out publicly about what happened to them 
and about their dealings with the church in the years that followed. And what that means is that, you know, it will stop them being forced into silence by some of these gag orders that were previously in place. Next, an altar boy's battle with the Catholic Church becomes a watershed moment for survivors. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. So, Chris, you've been looking at some of these cases that have gone to court since these reforms came in. Can you tell me about any of them that stuck out in your mind? Yeah, there's there's one case in particular that is really important when we're having this discussion. It's about a man who we only know as WCB. That's a court court pseudonym that's been used for him. So he was an altar boy in Warragul, which is southeast of Melbourne um, in the 1970s, and he suffered really quite horrendous abuse that happened over two and a half years by a local assistant parish priest named Daniel Hurrigan. Hurrigan was never charged. In fact, you know, when the police investigation into his abuse began, uh, he killed himself. But the sexual abuse that WCB endured led to all sorts of ongoing trauma. It, it led to alcohol abuse. It led him to isolate from other people, from his kids, his family. It led to 25 years of antidepressants led to nightmares, intrusive thoughts. You know, he said he'd try to put this abuse out of his mind, but it just kept coming back in and he couldn't do anything about it. But despite all that trauma, the church only offered him $32,500 in a settlement that was reached back in 1996. Uh, So more than 20 years later in, in 2020, he was able to apply to the court to have that set aside. And what that means is that that settlement is put to one side and he is able to then make a new claim for compensation to the church. That case that he lodged to set aside that settlement is crucial. It is widely, really widely regarded by lawyers as a landmark case in this area and one that really sort of paved the way for hundreds of other survivors to follow in his footsteps. In making his ruling, the Supreme Court judge, Andrew Keogh, said that WCB had suffered the loss of his childhood and serious post-traumatic stress disorder for more than 40 years. His case is deserving of a proper determination and proper and adequate compensation, he said. And so what happened in the end with this case? So following that ruling, he was expected to reach a new settlement with the church in the second half of 2022. It's unclear whether that's actually happened yet because that would be a private settlement. So, Chris, do we know roughly how many people have been able to receive more compensation for their historic abuse claims since these new laws came in? 
No, and this is the the question that I'd set out to answer when I started reporting on this, um, but it's it's proven to be extremely difficult to find out how successful they've been. So I asked every state and government that has these laws, I asked them you know, to give me data about how many settlements had been set aside under these reforms um, and how many new settlements had been reached. All of those state governments either said, you know, they don't keep that data or they couldn't easily provide it to me without making a, a formal, you know, request under under freedom of information laws. So that was really difficult and it, it, it does show that I, I think the governments don't really have any idea or aren't able to track how successful these reforms have been. And it's also important to note that a lot of these settlement deals are being made outside of court, so we don't have any ability to to work out where they're being made or how many are being made. But in saying that, I spoke to a lot of lawyers who specialise in this area, in this area of abuse claims, um, and they said really quite overwhelmingly that these reforms are fantastic and that they've made it a lot easier for survivors to get proper justice, to um, get compensation that in some cases is is being increased from, you know, a matter of tens of thousands of dollars to all the way up to million-dollar settlements. So that's a really clear indication that these laws are working and working quite well. And in that context, I guess, how, how important are these reforms which have been passed, I think, everywhere except for the ACT now? How, how important have they been in, in kind of redressing that, that historical imbalance, that power imbalance? Yeah, I think the reforms have been critical. It allows those who reached unfair settlements on the understanding that they had no legal rights to now approach the courts and seek to have those agreements set aside. So it creates that equal footing between the survivors um, before the reforms and those after the reforms. So interestingly, uh, Shine Lawyer's special counsel, Thomas Wallace-Parnell, his firm represents a large number of survivors who are revisiting these past settlements. He says the reforms have also driven a noticeable change in the attitude of the Catholic Church. So what he said to me was that the church used to use old lower compensation settlements to prevent any further claims from survivors, but that argument is now kind of falling away and it's making it much easier for firms like his to negotiate for higher amounts. He said there is a realisation that these unjust settlements should be and will be set aside. So that indicates that these laws could be having a broader positive impact on how these settlements are reached in the first place. So it's been a few years since these laws first started being passed. Do you think there's enough awareness among survivors that this avenue is open to them when they're claiming for compensation? So this is a problem that a lot of the lawyers I spoke to raised with me is that, you know, back in and around the time of the Royal Commission, there was a lot of publicity around these issues. They were really sort of forefront in people's minds. Um, they were in the news a lot. People were thinking about, you know, how how abuse claims were, were being responded to and dealt with. But that's really dropped off, um, particularly in the last few years when these reforms have come through. So what that means is that, that lawyers fear that a lot of survivors, there's a large cohort of survivors out there that just, don't know that this is an option that's available to them, that they can, you know, apply to challenge their old settlement on the basis that it was unfair or unjust. So that's why they think that publicity like this, you know, stories in the media about these changes are are really important in in sort of getting that word out um, to the hundreds and thousands of survivors who who are out there still. 
Hmm. And so where do you think these reforms fit in the larger push that we're seeing from state and territory and federal governments to try to prevent this abuse from happening in the first place? Yeah, look, I think it's really important. I mean, you know, the, the system that existed in the 90s and the 2000s, what it did was it created an imbalanced playing field. It created a, a situation where survivors had the odds completely stacked against them. So even contemplating taking on an institution for abuse that they've suffered or speaking out about abuse that they've suffered was really, really difficult. So all these reforms, they they rebalance the playing field. They they make it more level. And what that means is that that institutions, they they can't just count on survivors being silent anymore or sort of being too afraid to take them on. And I think that's a really important part of preventing abuse is not allowing abusers and the institutions in which they work to think that they can get away with it without consequence. That was reporter Christopher Norse. You can find more of his reporting at theguardian.com. He recently wrote a feature article that unpacks the history behind these reforms we discussed in the episode and also talks about how important they've been for adult survivors in recent years. It's called Watershed Moment. Australian child abuse survivors finally have real access to justice. I'll post a link to this article on the Full Story website so you can check it out there. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Laura Murphy-Oates and myself. Sound design and mixing by Joe Koning. Full Story's executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.